0: Welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, the Walter P. Stern Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Today's event is India and the future of the free and open Indo-Pacific. India's stance on Russia's invasion of Ukraine has led some to question the trajectory of India's grand strategy. So the question before us today is, is India more likely to align closely with its Quad- partners, primarily Japan and the United States, or is it more likely over time to become a third pole in international affairs, independent of both China and the United States? We're honored today to welcome a man who is an extraordinarily keen observer of international affairs, the Honorable Shigeru Kitamura, who is the former Secretary General of Japan's National Security Secretariat he will examine India's strategic directory both in formal remarks and then in a conversation with me. Shigeru Kitamura needs no introduction to those of us who follow Jap- Japan and Japanese politics and Indian and international affairs closely. He is not only Japan's second uh, Secretary General of the National Security Secretariat, the man who set up its uh, Economic Security Division, uh, he was also the distinguished head of japan's uh, cabinet intelligence and research organization he is a graduate of the university of tokyo and france's ecole nationale d'administration he has been uh, decorated by the french government with the legion of honor by the uh, us pentagon with the distinguished service medal and by the australian government uh, with its intelligence medal and uh, He is someone who is well known to policy leaders here in Washington and around the world. It's my honor, my pleasure to welcome him to the stage. I should also note that he is the editorial director of the widely, now bestseller, widely acclaimed Memoirs of Shinzo Abe, which came out uh, only a few weeks ago in Japan, and all of us await eagerly for the book to be uh, translated into uh, English. So uh, with those remarks, I'm uh, honored to welcome uh, uh, Shigeru Kitamura to the stage here at Hudson Institute. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Ken Weinstein. Uh, Today's subject is India especially related to the free and open in the Pacific. First of all, I appreciate very much your introduction about the memoir of the former prime minister, Abe. I was in charge of the editorial supervisor. In this book, we can listen to the candidate talk of the former prime minister about various issues, especially internal political issues and uh, uh, free and open in the Pacific. I hope uh, this book will be translated in English and will be read by global population. First of all I'd like to talk about the general situation of the uh, world affairs concerning India. The US-China competition is a long-running structural trend. It's a struggle for political, economic, technological, and military supremacy between a traditional hegemonic power and a new superpower that has repeated itself in the history. Although there are areas of healthy competition and cooperation in the bilateral relationship, both sides face domestic public opinion that tends to provoke a confrontation leading not only to tariff and other trade restrictions, but also to critical technology and supply chain fragmentation, which means partial decoupling. However, the US and China are highly dependent on each other in business. And their economic relationship is solid, unlike that of the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, when trade was practically zero. Although there is no guarantee that decision will occur based only on economic rationality, both sides are keenly aware of the enormous cost of complete decoupling. Pool decoupling would lead to significant domestic shortage and inflation on both sides, which would put considerable downward pressure on consumer spending and business activity. So the political costs of the decision would be high. India ASEAN, the Middle East, and other countries are growing in power due to their abundance of human and natural resources and sustained economic growth. These countries and regions are increasing their presence in the global south which does not belong to the US, Europe, Japan, nor China, democracy, or authoritarians. While both the US and Chinese camps seek to capture the Third Pole, these countries and regions are pursuing distant, and omnidirectional diplomacy, as evidenced by their stance on UN resolutions and participation in economic sanction frameworks. They seek financial benefits and diplomatic independence, a preference for either the US or China may make it difficult to do business in so-called neutral regions. Based on the free and open in the pacific concept, Japan aims to secure a rule-based international order and free trade. Third-party countries are sure to increase their national strengths and attractiveness as markets backed by abundant populations. ASEAN, in particular, already has strong economic ties with the Japanese economy and business. Still, India, in particular, will become a more significant player because of its future growth potential. While historic background vary, each country is not beholden to the US nor China, with whom it has a deep rivalry, but is generally oriented toward balanced diplomacy to secure diplomatic independence and economic benefits. India has the most room for growth among the US, China, and India. It will surpass Germany and Japan to become the third largest economy by 2030. And the economies of the US, China, and India will be comparable in size in about 50 years. India is the only nation that can compete with the US and China over the next 50 years. As the world's largest democracy, India experienced a war with China in the 1960s and still has a history of border disputes and China's expansion into the Indian Ocean. Historically, it has strong military ties with Russia. The Quad Framework and the free and open Indo Pacific Partnership concept are shared by the four countries of Japan, the US, Australia, and India. India does not directly blame Russia for the Ukraine issue and impose crude oil from Russia also. India aims for international independence through economic pragmatism and all-around diplomacy. On the economic front, it has deep ties with the US, Europe, China, and Asia, all of which have FTAs and economic partnerships. In international politics, for example, it's a core member of G20s. It's really a third ball alongside the U.S., Europe, Japan, and China. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for those uh, deeply uh, insightful remarks. It's a uh rare these days uh, in looking at international affairs that people talk in terms of 50 years from now. It's a reminder of uh, the founder of Hudson Institute, Herman Kahn, who always believed that uh, in order to get the contemporary picture correct, you needed to look at the big picture over the long term. And so it, it's very helpful uh, to, uh, for your uh, uh for our analysis uh, and for the discussion moving forward. So I uh, thank you. Uh, let, me, let me begin by asking you about something you talked about in your remarks. You talked about first about the importance of domestic public opinion in both the United States and China um, driving the competition. And um, I, I wonder as, a, as, a, as someone who knows Washington well who is un, an unquestioned, dedicated ally of the united states uh, what you would tell our policymakers in terms of public opinion in the united states with regard to china do you do you think as you look at the, the policy debate over china in washington are you, are you concerned as an outside observer do you think the rhetoric is there's there's all sorts of discussion sometimes the rhetoric is considered by some too harsh sometimes the rhetoric is uh, criticized in various means. How, how do you view things? And, and do you view them differently from a Japanese perspective? Uh, that description, description in my remarks is a
1: observation over the actual situation of both countries. Personally, I welcome the change of the public opinion of the United States, especially I welcomed the departure of the uh, engagement policy of the United States, especially in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, up to now, up to that moment, uh, I'm very anxious about uh, some uh, public opinion of the United States.
0: It was interesting because Shinzo Abe, over the years I knew him, he was much more skeptical of China than uh, our leaders here in Washington were, uh, concerned about technological developments, concerned about Chinese investment in uh, Japan, Chinese investment in the United States, Chinese investment uh, more broadly. Uh, and, and you know, then we saw here in the United States, particularly it was right here at Hudson Institute when Vice President Pence offered his... Uh, his his speech uh, outlining a new vision for U.S.-China relations in October of 2018 that things really started to change uh, quickly and and then became much more aligned with Japan's, uh, the Japanese vision on China. But Japan has always had two sides to a vision on China, even under Prime Minister Abe. There was also an engagement strategy as well I totally inclined uh, toward the
1: policy taken by the former Prime Minister Abe. Uh, He saw the situation, especially in the East China Sea and South China Sea, was so precarious for him, especially during the period of the land filling of the Seventh Shore. This occurred during the period of the tenure of the president uh, obama yeah. at that moment uh, prime minister Abe uh, showed his imagery intelligence to the of course president obama and other uh, chief of the state of the european country but uh, it was so difficult uh, for him to get the positive answer from the western uh, leaders, but uh, during uh, several years, the land landfilling for seven shores uh, were accomplished. In the garden of the White House, uh, President Xi promised that seven shore will not be militarized. But it's a total lie for the world, I think. Actually, the area inside the Shrine was totally militarized. And there is no deterrence. And actually, it has become some kind of bastion, like
0: the Ohotsku
1: Sea of Russia.
0: Yeah, it, was, it was it was interesting because Prime Minister Abe was usually very guarded in his public comments. I mean, the memoir, which we all await for in English, uh, being an exception because there were interviews he did uh, where he, he spoke his mind on critical issues. But he, in the last major interview he did with The Economist, he talked about the fact that it was President Obama's retreat from U.S. global leadership that, in part, led him to pursue a much more active both military and diplomatic agenda. And this issue of the militarization of the artificial islands were, were at the center of, of, his, uh, of the change in Japanese policy. Uh,
1: but I, I think it's totally right, I think. And uh, uh, he tried to do that. But uh, finally, after the change of the US policy, uh, his persuasion was finally successful. Yeah. Uh, after his, you know, the end of his tenure, the, he must be satisfied with the actual situation. I think.
0: Yeah, look, it was very clear to those of us watching from Washington that Prime Minister Abe was the leader of the free world in that period. There were there was all this talk in major publications about Chancellor Merkel of Germany being the leader of the free world, but we see her vision. Now in ashes, with the failure of, uh, with a, the the havoc that Nord Stream Two wreaked, the destruction of Ukraine, the war that followed, um, and whereas Prime Minister Abe's vision of the free and open Indo-Pacific being adopted by uh, the United States, being adopted by Australia, increasingly being adopted by uh, well, adopted by Great Britain, adopted by Germany. Adopted by the European Union, uh, and it is, it is a vision that has really uh, come to the fore. And also the vision he had, which he took from his grandfather, of uh, uh, this closer the closer ties to uh, to India in particular, and the the India case, is, as you note, presents uh, some some challenges. Uh, India is both the chair of the G20 but is all hosting the host hosting the G20 this year Japan is hosting the G7 uh, at the G20 uh, we saw the presence of uh, foreign minister Lavrov who was also also took part in the Raisina dialogue that the India foreign ministry holds uh, and then we we're also seeing India is going to host the uh, Shanghai uh, cooperation organization which includes both Russia and China and uh, you mentioned uh, India continues to buy uh, oil from Russia and c- continues to maintain uh, its uh, its multi foreign policy of uh, en- engagement in the Quad, obviously engagement with the Russians, lesser engagement with the Chinese, arguably. Um, uh, but it, as you as you look at India's uh, Reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Were you were you surprised at all? What's what's your sense about what that tells us about deeper trends in India's foreign policy? Uh, First of all, uh,
1: you mentioned about uh, the diplomacy uh, of the former prime minister. Uh, Actually, the prime minister Kishida promised to increase the military expenditure uh, considerably. And it was welcomed by the US government. Maybe it, he's seeking for the 2% for the GDP. In considering actual surrounding uh, situation, it's rational, and it's good. Uh, however, during the tenure of the former prime minister Abe, uh, of course, he increased the military budget. But comparing with the uh, GDP, it's not easy to surpass the limit of the 1%. Therefore, I never asked him directly, but uh, he preferred to enhance the deterrence through the diplomacy uh, in seeking for the value of the democracy rule uh, of law, and uh, no use of the uh, coercion or changing the status quo. Therefore, he established multi-layered uh, international structure, like Quad, like free and open in the Pacific, and the cross-tie uh, with the US. From time to time, the former prime minister Abe is criticized as a hawkish politician. But in reality, he is seeking for the uh, democratic value and to maintain the stable relationship with our neighbors, DPRK and China and Russia. This point is emphasized even in the uh, memoir of the Prime Minister. It's a first point. Second point, Of course we are rather irritated. Not, not, we are a little bit irritated about the uh, standpoint of the India against the uh, Ukraine warfare. But uh, in thinking about its position seriously, it must be a rational decision-making by Prime Minister Modi. Of course, as I mentioned in my speech, India participates in the Quad. But the national interest of India is not the containment of China. They are seeking for some hegemony in the South and Western Asia, the number one in this region. But recently, this status was threatened by China. First one is uh, one road from the seabone and another one in the Kashmir from the northern part. Several years ago, I talked with the Indian authority. They are not willing to participate in the Quad. Because they can understand the importance of this meaning, and for example, we must listen to the speech of the Prime Minister Modi on the occasion of the Shangri-La Dialogue. He never mentioned about free and open in the Pacific, and rather he underscored the independence of the uh, diplomacy of India, and he made much of the centrality of ASEAN. Some American colleagues said to me he was disappointed. But uh, in this speech, Mr. Modi expressed the real intention of India. Despite the participation of Quad, India is seeking for its own interest. As I mentioned, India's military equipment is almost occupied by the Russian-made. And uh, they import crude oil from Russia also. From the viewpoint of the national interest itself, it's natural they never support the resolution of the western countries but india is also underscoring the security aspect with the us and the Japan and Australia. Last year, we publicized a joint statement for Quad. Some said Quad meeting was degraded to the economic cooperation. But it's not true, because three pillars are important. One is connectivity. Second one is the cooperation in the advanced technology. Third pillar is internet security. Three pillars are economic, but closely related to the uh, security. I think connectivity is so important, as I mentioned, The PRC is threatening India from the vertical direction, north to south, to find out the exit to the ocean. Instead, India is seeking for the connectivity, west and east. This policy is totally going with the policy taken by Japan. Japan is seeking for the connectivity east and west. We must pay attention to such signals and such move from India. And actually, I can understand very well the Indian policy. At the same time, it's so important. Uh, we must encircle India to our side through the various methods, especially economies.
0: I think Because it, when you think of encirclement of India, normally you think of the Chinese uh, with uh, their ties to Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, That's right. as sort of seeking, in a sense, to encircle India. And um, in India, also, is you know, is, has uh, uh, sought in different ways to uh, begin to think through the infrastructure challenge in, in Southeast Asia. There's, there's talk of building this rail line from Ho Chi Minh City and Jakarta mm. to uh, uh, to India as well to begin to challenge the Belt and Road mm. uh, possibility. But uh, I, I, I guess I. I I guess I have a couple of questions based on on what you're saying. I'm wondering, first of all, if you have a sense as you you look at the, you know, obviously the concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific varies even between the United States and Japan, the United States and Australia, Australia and Japan, let alone India, which has the most inclusive and broadest sort of concept of of the Indo-Pacific geographically as well as Geopolitically, um, I wonder if, if if would you say that the Japanese vision of the of the Indo-Pacific is, in some sense, closer to the Indian vision of the Indo-Pacific, or would the would the cause one might argue that the United States's vision of the free and open Indo-Pacific and India's is probably the the, the one that varies the most. Um, or do you, do you not see that uh, that balance or is there a role that Japan can play that the United States cannot play in terms of trying to bring India closer in? I think you know the sphere of India and the sphere of the
1: free and open India, as it will be free and in the Pacific, uh doesn't uh overlap. Yeah. It's true. But the part is important is we can take advantage of the common interest which are seeked by Indian government and which are seeked by ourselves, I think. Mm
0: -hmm. We're starting to see, obviously, this deeper economic engagement with India, as you pointed out. Even Foxconn is now moving uh, manufacturing of iPhones to increasingly to India. There have been, been obviously, technological challenges with that. I'm wondering, in, in your sort of Industrial security, economic security, hat that that you have. Do you you know you talked about India? You know you talked about the importance of, with the Quad of connectivity and and um, uh, cybersecurity and like. Do you see how, how trustworthy a security partner do you see India in? in, in you know how. Yeah, I mean, including the United States, Japan, and Australia, we are incredibly tight partners in terms of uh, uh, intelligence sharing, in terms of cybersecurity, which so much progress was made under your tenure, both at Ciro and at the National Security Secretariat, uh, and on economic security. And I'm wondering where you see India standing. First of all, uh, today also I talked with my US colleagues. Uh,
1: You mentioned about manufacturing the iPhone in in India. Uh, I mentioned about uh, the potentiality of India for the economy, but uh, there are uh, several challenges also. Uh, For example, there are some uh, challenges uh, stemming from the bureaucracy. Uh, some challenges from the stemming from the uh, social uh, problems, also uh, some segment of the local issue, also uh, maybe in establishing the total cooperation, uh, India must overcome such kind of challenges, also. But uh, in anyhow we must uh, pay attention to the positive element of India. Of course, there are lots of things to do. And uh, uh, but uh, personally, I like to bet the better uh, potentiality and the future of India. And uh, I'd like to uh, pay attention to the biggest democratic country of the world. That uh, also a positive element of India. I think.
0: And India is also going to become the biggest country in the world just in the, uh, next month, I think, is when it surpasses China in terms of its uh, population. One of the interesting things this year at Davos to see was that the Indians, the Chinese, were not nearly as present as they used to be, and the Indians really were the superstars mm-hmm. at Davos. And is, India has this potential to rise as the kind of third whole of international affairs with the United States and, and China, one wonders, you know, uh, where the Europeans will come out, that there is a, the Europeans are, are, are in a sense, uh, often critical of the United States for, uh, obviously both dependent on the United States, but also highly critical of us in, in, in different ways. And I wonder whether you think India will, will the appeal of India in Europe, uh, you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time in France and know Europe well from uh, your Broad government experience. Do you see India as exerting uh, a kind of soft power diplomacy uh, in Europe as well as, in addition to its ability to attract uh, the global South, as you mentioned in your remarks?
1: I think the evaluation and the appreci- appreciation has always two sides: an India of Quad and India of Global South. I think the. That's the same India, but the viewpoint is different. Uh, but as I said, we must cooperate with India in considering the element, positive element, for the cooperation and, uh, to some extent,
0: uh, the alliance. I think. Mm-hmm. And in, in terms of the Global South, Japan's role, what should Japan be doing now that it's not doing in terms of uh, greater cooperation with the Global South? I think the role of the
1: Japan is so important, uh, because the, among G7, uh, Japan is the only country uh, which can bridge the ASEAN country and the Western countries. And uh, we have the special relationship with India, and uh, we started for a long time the ticket uh, with African country.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Happily, based on our constitution, peaceful constitution, uh, reputation of the international community is rather good. And uh, there is no history of the colonialism in Africa and the Arab country. Uh, Japan must take advantage of such international image and uh, play a positive role for bridging the European and the US, U.S. and the so-called global South.
0: It was it was always a big part of uh, Prime Minister Abe's uh, diplomacy. In fact, he announced the free and open Indo-Pacific at the. Uh, the in africa at the tcad summit in that's right in 26 summer of 2016 yeah. uh and it very much had his eyes on uh on the indian ocean countries in africa kenya in particular uh, as as central to his vision of the free and open indo that's right uh and uh china's obviously china's behavior in africa while Seek- seemingly omnipresent has also uh, brought uh, some irritation. Uh, Africans upset with the quality of infrastructure sold, Africans upset with the use of Chinese rather than domestic laborers, uh, heavy-handed uh, tactics by uh, Chinese government, uh, obviously widespread presence of uh, the Chinese uh, intelligence agencies and security counterparts in countries where China has become engaged. Uh, do you see any change in Africa on the African side or an opening now in Africa for, uh, for Japan? Certainly, you see one for India. First of all, I, I talked about uh, the limit of the uh, One
1: Belt, One Road initiative. Uh, Maybe the administration of PRC observed some limit of the one road, one belt initiative. One belt, one road initiative. and Because of the stagnation of the Chinese economy and the no popularity of such kind of the behavior, I think it's a very good. Timing for us to proceed our own uh, infrastructure uh, cooperation vision toward so-called uh, global South in reiterating the value of the uh, democracy, rule of law, transparency, and uh, no interference uh, in the internal politics. Side.
0: Interesting. Let me let me ask you one final question before you wrap up, and that's uh, about Taiwan. Uh, Prime Minister Abe famously noted uh, that a Taiwan contingency would be a Japan contingency. He made sure that uh, the notion of the so-called Taiwan scenario became a subject of public debate in Japan, and that led to an increased awareness of just how challenged Japan's own security was uh, in the case of, uh, of uh, some kind of a Chinese uh, attack, whether it be open, whether it be gray zone upon Taiwan. Where do you think India would stand in the event of, uh, of a Taiwan contingency? Can we predict, would, would, would the reaction be similar to what uh, we saw in the case of Ukraine would we, or would you expect a different uh, assessment from uh, from uh, India's leaders? I'm sure that you know the India's leaders, but uh, uh,
1: concerning the Taiwan contingency, we can underscore uh, two things. One is the. Uh, geographical difference ukraina ukraine is connecting russia directly but the contingency of the taiwan the prc must pass through taiwan strait it's a extreme extremely difficult if, extreme difficulty uh, for the tactics the Taiwan contingency from the viewpoint of the PRC. Second is the international reaction concerning the uh, resolution against Russia on the Ukraine warfare. Almost 150, more than that, I'm, I'm sure, but the uh, such kind of uh, countries uh, vote for this resolution. But uh, concerning Taiwan, internationally, Taiwan is isolated. Therefore, it's not easy for Taiwan to get such numerous support from the uh, international uh, society. This is uh, uh, two things. I must point out. Second part is uh, rather important. Prime Minister Abe mentioned the Taiwan uh, contingency is Japan's conting- contingency. Uh, this words were also radically uh, criticized by the uh, public opinion newspaper. But uh, militarily, it's a natural things. Geographically, Taiwan and uh, Japan archipelago is very close, so near is the first point. Second point, as I mentioned, the uh, PLA must uh, go across the Taiwan Strait. What is the most what is the biggest obstacle for this operation? It's a US base in Japan. It's a Seventh Fleet also in Japan. In order to wipe out the hindrance of the US military forces, practically. It's normal. It's natural. The PRC attack, first of all, the US base and the Seventh Fleet in Japan. That's why, despite the posture of Japan toward Taiwan, Taiwan's contingency has become naturally the Japan's contingency.
0: Well, thank you very much. This is, uh, I know I've learned a lot. This has been, uh, your insights are always uh, extraordinary, and we could see why Prime Minister Abe, why Prime Minister Suga, and many others uh, over many years have relied upon your advice in Japan and abroad. just want to thank you, uh, Shikara Kitamura, for being with us. Honored to have you with us. And thank, you thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your insights. Thank, thank you thank very you much. Sir.